Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Historical Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dermot Melidi about his biography of the Irish political leader John Redmond. In many ways, Redmond today is the forgotten man of Irish history, but a century ago, he was the leader of the Irish Nationalist Party, the dominant political party in Irish politics. In 1914, he was on the verge of achieving the goal... Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Historical Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dermot Melidi about his biography of the Irish political leader John Redmond. In many ways, Redmond today is the forgotten man of Irish history, but a century ago, he was the leader of the Irish Nationalist Party, the dominant political party in Irish politics. In 1914, he was on the verge of achieving the goal of home rule within the United Kingdom, a goal that had been long sought by Irish activists before the outbreak of the First World War transformed British politics, leaving Redmond to be eclipsed by events. Dermot, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Dermot, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Okay, well, um, I've been a teacher, um, uh, a high school teacher, most of my career, um, which was uh, which was uh, I went for about uh, thirty five years. But uh, during that time, um, I was I, I was teaching mathematics and science mainly, but I'd always had an interest in history. Uh, in mid career, I did a degree with London University in, in history. And when I finished that, I was looking around for a, for a project to work on, a historical project. Uh, I found there was a large gap in the uh, biographical record when it came to this particular man, John Redmond. Uh, the, pre- the last previous full-length biography of Redmond had been published in 1932. So I was there in the late 90s looking around for, for a suitable um, uh, topic, and it, it just seemed to me... I mean, I'd always had a fascination with the the period around the turn of the 20th century in Irish nationalist politics. And at that uh, combined with the long gap in the biographical record regarding Redmond uh, decided me to try this. So I spent I, I spent uh, about 12 years altogether researching and writing the two volumes of the biography, which which we're now um, uh, talking about. And the first volume came out in, uh, was it uh, 2008? 2008, exactly. <laughs> and that took Redmond's life up to 1900. And I was wondering if you could uh, just spend a minute talking about his early years. Just give us a bit of background to where, uh, to, that brings us to where the second volume begins. Okay, well, Redmond began as a uh, young, a very young politician. He became an MP um, in the Westminster Parliament at the age of 24. He joined the Irish Home Rule Party, the Irish Parliamentary Party, at exactly the moment when the charismatic Charles Stuart Parnell uh, had uh, just taken over the leadership and was fashioning the party into a into a disciplined parliamentary uh, instrument for the achievement of Irish autonomy or Irish self-government. So uh, Redmond became a junior member of the party. His own background had been uh, he was uh, descended from a uh, an old Catholic landed Anglo-Norman family, which had been 
uh, dispossessed in the wars of the 17th century. Uh, the, they had been dispossessed, but not expelled. So they stayed around and became quite uh, prosperous um, in farming and so on. And when Catholic emancipation came in 1829, uh, his ancestors did quite well. Uh, they joined the kind of uh, county lieutenancy and so on um, under British rule. Uh, we're talking about a, the county, which is the most southeasterly in on the island of Ireland, uh, County Wexford. Um, his family, uh, Redmond's uh, immediate ancestors, were involved in the public life of County Wexford. Um, um, so he um, he inherited a um, tradition of uh, uh, public service in that county. And uh, in fact, his father was one of the first uh, Home Rule MPs to be elected in 1872 when the Home Rule Party was founded. So uh, Redmond uh, became an apprentice, uh, you might say, to his father. Uh, he attended university for a couple of years, but didn't graduate. Instead, he went to London and, and sat in the House of Commons watching his father and the other MPs of the Irish Parliamentary Party um, as they um, campaigned for home rule and so on. Uh, so he became an, a very young MP and at the uh, about, uh, he joined at the, uh, as I said, uh, under Parnell's leadership. Um, it, uh, what was happening uh, in Ireland at that time was a very great ferment. The Land League, which was the uh, agrarian uh, organisation, uh, which was aimed at improving the lot of the Irish tenants under the landlord system and ultimately winning a, a uh, winning ownership of the land for the tenants. Uh, that Land League was, was at the height of its activity in 1881 when Redmond joined, uh, became a politician. And uh, so Redmond joined at the very moment when a lot of things were happening, a lot of uh, ferment in Parliament and outside Parliament, including um, a lot of agrarian violence in uh, all over the uh, countryside in Ireland. Uh, a little later, uh, Parnell, when things quietened down a bit in 1883, uh, Parnell sent him on a on a on a one-year uh, uh, mission to Australia and New Zealand, and so he spent he spent a full year there traveling, uh, uh, canvassing support for the uh, for constitutional methods for the party at home. Uh, and also fundraising among Irish emigrants in those countries. On his way home, he actually didn't come back directly. He came via the United States and he made the first of, of uh, I think it's a um, total of nine visits in his life to the United States. He came back from Australia via San Francisco, crossed the continent and met up with uh, the Irish, the uh, prominent Irish American politicians uh, in, uh, mainly based in uh, New York and Boston. Um, at that time, the Irish-American um, political um, elite, if you like, were uh, very much um, conspiratorial. Uh, they didn't hold with uh, the constitutional methods of uh, agitation, but they were rather wedded. Many of them had been former revolutionaries in Ireland who had been uh, exiled or otherwise emigrated to the States from Ireland. So uh, Redmond had a um, had quite a job selling the idea of peaceful constitutional campaigning for home rule to these guys. Um, he he was quite feisty and uh, he was a, he was helped by the fact that he was an extremely good orator in Parliament. 
so these helped him. Uh, he made another trip to the States for the Chicago Convention of the uh, uh, the support group for the Home Rule Party. That was in 1886. So these were uh, uh, young experiences, uh, youthful experiences that stayed with him for the rest of his life. He, um, in Australia and New Zealand, he came across uh, Irish emigrants who were actually prospering under a form of British rule, if you like, an autonomous form, but yet under uh, the British constitution. Um, in America, he met the other side of Irish, of the Irish diaspora, the Irish who were uh, very embittered, if you like, against uh, Britain and wanted uh, a violent break with British rule. So he saw both sides of the Irish diaspora on that uh, trip at the age of 25, uh, 27 in 1880s. So his his commitment to home rule was not simply a sense of this is the best we'll be able to do. It was a positive commitment. He believed in the idea of Ireland remaining part of the British system, if you will, albeit one with greater uh, autonomy and freedom. Yes, uh, this marked him out from many of his contemporaries. Many of his, uh, many of his um, uh, colleagues in the Irish Parliamentary Party were uh, it did have this sort of stance that you just described. There were people who felt, well, we'd like to get to have, we'd like to win greater autonomy, but this is the best we can uh, that we can achieve. He himself uh, developed a positive attachment to the idea of um, um, autonomy within the uh, British Empire from his experiences of meeting the Irish diaspora in Australia and New Zealand. So that is true. And of course, 1886 was a very important year in terms of the home rule issue. Well, it was. And, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Because uh, that was the year when, well, uh, in uh, early that year, uh, uh, due to uh, Parnell's uh, use or exploitation, if you like, of the position, the balance of power position, which the home rule party held in the British Parliament, um, the um, Prime Minister Gladstone was persuaded to introduce a Home Rule Bill for Ireland. Um, it it uh, didn't succeed. It got as far as a second reading in the House of Commons. But the uh, Gladstone's own Liberal Party split on the issue. And so, re- so Gladstone was forced to withdraw the bill. Um, it didn't deter the the the, the Young members of the Irish Home Rule Party, it, it, they they had uh, found the whole uh, events had moved with such speed over the uh, preceding year that they were uh, exhilarated by the pace of events. And when when the bill went down and was withdrawn, they took the attitude that well, we've actually got further than we had ever uh, expected to go in such a short time, and they reckoned that it another attempt will be made very, very quickly. So they were quite hopeful after they, the debacle in the House of Commons. Now, as things turned out, uh, uh, a second Home Rule Bill was not introduced until 1893, so seven years later, although still uh, by Gladstone, who was by then a very, very old man. Uh, he was in his last year in uh, uh, politics. Uh, a second Home Rule Bill that second Home Rule Bill went further than the first. It actually got voted through the House of Commons by a majority. But as, it, as everybody expected, the House of Lords 
slapped a veto on it, and so the bill failed. And by that point, uh, Parnell had died. Uh, the uh, Irish Parliamentary Party had, uh, in effect, split over this issue of his of, of his relationship with Kitty O'Shea and the revelation of the divorce and everything. So where is where does Redmond fit uh, in terms of the split and, and, and the aftermath of, of Parnell's demise? Well, in the split itself, which was very traumatic for the Irish party, which uh, began in late 1890, uh, the majority of the party um, took the attitude that uh, Parnell uh, couldn't remain as leader because Gladstone had said that uh, that he himself, as leader of the Liberal Party, couldn't re- couldn't remain as a um, in alliance with the Irish Parliamentary Party if Parnell remained as leader. So the majority of the Irish Party then uh, abandoned uh, uh, abandoned Parnell as leader. Uh, Redmond was the most prominent of the MPs who who remained loyal to Parnell. So the, the, the party split along the lines of uh, about uh, two to one. Uh, about 28 MPs stayed loyal to um, Parnell and Redmond effectively became their leader. He hadn't been previously in the front rank of the party because he, after he came back from Australia, he had been, he'd adopted a slightly less prominent position but when the split happened, he the, the split kind of catapulted him to the to a leadership um, post within the the uh, those who remained loyal to to Parnell. Uh, roughly double that number uh, of MPs abandoned Parnell. So for the rest of that decade, for the whole of the 1890s, Redmond led. Uh, what was really seen then as a rump of the original Irish uh, parliamentary party. The Parnellites um, you, uh, typically won about one third of the nationalist vote in Ireland. But because of the British system of election, which is not proportional, but first past the post, uh, his followers, Redmond's followers, uh, Redmond's uh, band of MPs only won nine seats in the parliament as opposed to over 70 seats won by the the anti-Parnellite opposition. So that this split was this uh, split within Irish nationalism, within parliamentary nationalism, remained uh, until 1900. It was very bitter, but it remained strictly at the verbal level. It never descended into uh, violence. Um, in uh, It went through many twists and turns, which are too, too convoluted to go into here, but by 1900, Redmond was seen as the, of the prominent leaders on, on both sides, Redmond was seen as the one who was most likely um, to conciliate the people on the opposite side. And so he was elected uh, leader in early, uh, early in the year in 1900. Was that a function of his rhetorical skills? Was that uh, a, a sense that he had done a better job leading the Parnellite faction in the 1890s? What exactly made him stand out from a lot of other very prominent individuals? What made him stand out? Well, you mentioned his rhetorical skills, and that was certainly a factor. He was seen as a very good parliamentary performer, uh, and not simply uh, rhetorical skills, but knowledge of parliamentary procedure. Uh, he was seen as as a consummate uh, uh, parliamentary man, uh, but on top of that, he um, he was also somebody who they, uh, 
during the very uh, bitter verbal conflicts of the 1890s, he had stayed, uh, he had managed to keep his rhetoric free from personal rancor, uh, whereas some of the other, well, one in particular on the other side, uh, Tim Healy, was uh, somebody who could never have been seen as a conciliator. He was, uh, his rhetoric had been very, I mean, right from the beginning, right from the start of the of the Parnell divorce case, he had been uh, his. Uh, he had a very scurrilous uh, form of uh, rhetoric and of um, debunking the opposition. Um, Redmond's uh, Redmond's uh, rhetoric remained free of that, so he was seen uh, as personally affable and as somebody who could conciliate. And if these expectations were fulfilled when. Uh, Within a couple of years, within two or three years of him becoming leader, uh, MPs on both sides, uh, formerly on both sides, were saying that uh, Redmond had been uh, a great conciliator, that he had managed to heal the wounds of the split. So uh, this uh, certainly um, was one of the things that stood to his credit. And then, but when he takes uh, over the now reunited uh, uh, parliamentary party in 1900, the prospects don't seem to be good in the short term. The unionists are uh, have a majority in the parliament. And yet one of the things that really stands out in those first chapters uh, describing the period between, say, 1900 and, and, and you know, 1905, 1906, is how much he's able to accomplish for Ireland, not so much in terms of home rule, but in terms of a lot of other issues that matter greatly to Ireland. Sure. Uh, yeah, when at the time he became uh, leader in 1900, uh, we, uh, Ireland was midway through 10 years of Tory rule. And the Tory policy by 1900 was has been uh, summed up as uh, killing home rule with kindness. In other words, they were intent on defusing the, the, um, the uh, popular... Irish desire for home rule by um, enacting measures which would uh, which was which they supposed would um, conciliate Irish nationalists. So, for example, in 1898, they brought in a democratic local government, uh, which was which uh, was a very, very significant move. But by 1900, uh, the big item on the agenda, Redmond realized that the Tories were going to be in power for quite a while. So he knew that home rule wasn't going to be a practical issue. But the one issue that was uh, a serious, uh, was worth taking seriously was the land question. Ever since the start of his career 20 years earlier, um, the big demand of, of uh, the, the second big uh, major demand of Irish nationalist politicians at Westminster after um, self-government itself was a resolution of the land question. And this meant um in practical terms, it meant the government financing the uh, peasants or the tenant farmers uh, to, to enable them to purchase their holdings from the landlords. The landlords owned vast tracts of land which were uh, 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 parceled out to, uh, in some cases, hundreds, or in extreme cases, thousands of tenants. So the the scheme that everybody knew would uh, needed to be enacted was a scheme which would advance loans to the tenants. 
those loans would then be used to buy out the landlords and the uh, tenants would pay back the loans at repayment rates which were lower uh, uh, than the historical rents, rent rates which they had paid uh, to the landlords. So this was the, the nuts and bolts of the scheme. Uh, so Redmond's agitation for the, the first three years of his leadership or the first two years of his leadership was aimed at getting the Tory government uh, to enact this scheme. He was lucky that uh, it was a prosperous time. Uh, the economy was doing well in Britain. The Treasury was willing to do this. And uh, he was also lucky in the fact that the chief secretary, in other words, Britain's chief representative uh, in Ireland, was um, uh, emotionally and personally favourable to Irish aspirations. So uh, Chief Secretary Wyndham persuaded the Treasury to uh, give out a very large sum of money, which would, uh, which was then um, uh, parcelled out to the tenants. So, in three years, Redmond achieved the uh, the uh, the greatest of the land acts, the land purchase acts. There had been uh, other previous acts in the 1890s, but they, the finance had been too meagre. Um, this was the big one, and. It's extremely significant in Ireland's history because what it means, you know, if you compare with uh, other countries in Eastern Europe at the time when uh, which had agrarian problems, uh, Poland and Russia, um, when uh, the revolution happened in Russia, there was a major the the land question in the peasantry was a major um, component of the revolution in Ireland. By the time the violent revolution for independence came in 1916. The social component had already been solved peacefully. The land, the land question was resolved largely without the shedding of a drop of blood. By 1916, 62% of Irish land had been, the ownership of, had been transferred to the people who worked the land. Uh, so therefore, there was uh, little or no, uh, there was a, a small residual element, of course, but there, the, the social uh, the agrarian uh, element in the Irish Revolution had had basically been resolved. Uh, Nothing on the scale of, say, the 1870s with uh, the the boycott campaign and so forth. Well, the boycott campaign had been an early uh, tactic or uh, engine of the the early struggles, but that had they uh, Gladstone in 1881 had brought in a reforming Land Act, which was also which also merits the title of great because it did bring in, effectively it brought in joint ownership between the tenants and the landlords. Um, it didn't have a purchase component in it. So uh, tech, so uh, legally landlords uh, remained as the owners and tenants remained as as the, uh, the uh, rent payers. But that 1881 Land Act of Gladstone had set up land courts, which every, every uh, 15 years, uh, reviewed rents and uh, when they reviewed them they always recast them in a downward uh, direction so effectively from 1881 the landlords were losing in terms of rent the, the real value of rents was decreasing and this gave a very large incentive for the landlords then when the Wyndham Act of 1903 came it gave the landlords a strong incentive to go for for uh, selling the land to the tenants they they weren't their uh, situation was not improving um, as it was under the rent-paying system. So uh, 
uh, yeah, so that's the uh, the nub of the land question had been resolved um, uh, effectively. Uh, the, uh, the setting in train of the resolution uh, might be more accurate in 1903 and for the rest of that decade and well into well up to, uh, you know, even into the life of the independent Irish state in the 1920s, the the, the rest of the of the process of sale and purchase was still going on, you know, to bring the, the final uh, 20, 30 percent of Irish land into farmer ownership. So yet in spite of this achievement, he Redmond never really loses sight of his ultimate goal, which is home rule. And he is ultimately banking on a uh, liberal victory in the in a general election. And that happens in 1906. And yet it happens in a way that that actually frustrates his goal. And I was wondering if you explain what happened there and what he does in the years immediately following 1906. Well, in 1906, the, uh, what happened was that the Liberals won a landslide against the Tories. So um, that meant that the Irish party had became pretty irrelevant in the House of Commons. It didn't have any leverage uh, to... They, they, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a case of the Liberal Party uh, having ceased to believe in home rule, they, the Liberals still had home rule in their uh, party programme. Uh, the problem was that it wasn't near the top of their practical agenda. They had other. They were involved in a in a. They had a very comprehensive programme of liberal social reform within uh, Great Britain, and uh, getting uh, giving Ireland home rule was pretty low on their list of priorities. So, without leverage in the British Parliament. Redden couldn't do very much in the first few years. So uh, he did um, campaign as much as he could and uh, he lobbied incessantly. Uh, the result was that in 1907, which was just the second year of the Liberal government, he he, he won a devolution measure, which was uh, turned out to be a, um, a poison chalice. It was presented to him as home rule by installment, and he saw the merit of that because he he would never turn down an advance of any kind. But a home rule by installment um, turned out the 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 scale of the installment simply turned out to be too little, and uh, he was damaged politically for for a time um, in going along with this. It it. Um, it uh, caused. It didn't exactly cause a new split in the Irish Party, but it it uh, demoralised the party for for a while, and it took it the whole. Um, it took most of the year of 1908 to to uh, restore the morale of of the party. Luckily, um, the Liberals were also amenable to other reform legislation, and in fact, 1908 um, turned out to be a very successful year for Redmond and the Irish party in terms of other reforms. For example, uh, a long-standing demand of Catholic Ireland, which effectively means nationalist Ireland. Catholic Ireland had long wanted a university of its own or a university which was more in tune with the ethos of uh, Catholics. Trinity College uh, in Dublin was the main university in Ireland and had been there since Queen Elizabeth the first time, but it was seen as a bastion of uh, Protestant and Anglo-Irish rule. Uh, so uh, Redmond uh, joined, um, had joined the 
the campaign for a uh, university. Um, uh, it would be wrong to call it a Catholic university. It wasn't meant to be um, a confessional or sectarian university, but simply a, a university which Catholics could feel more comfortable in attending. Um, in 1908, uh, after a, a long uh, a period of lobbying, he actually won this university and it, it became a reality the following year. Um, he also uh, uh, won legislation for the Liberals to restore uh, the evicted uh, tenants, the, the tenants who had been uh, out of their holdings, in some cases for up to 20 years as a result. They were, they were known as uh, the wounded soldiers of the land war. The land war having taken place in the 1880s, and some of these people uh, were are, the legislation that Redmond won in 1908 restored most of these to their original holdings or gave them alternative uh, land holdings. So these were some of the uh, reform victories that Redmond won. So the the, uh, the the devolution fiasco of 1907 was happily for him soon forgotten. Uh, then what what really uh, turned the tide. Um, in the fortunes, uh, um, in the fortunes of his party, was um, uh, something that happened within British politics, and, and, and this was a watershed in Redmond's career. In uh, 1908, the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, Lloyd George, uh, wanted to, to uh, bring in a raft of new socially progressive legislation, including um, uh, 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 pensions for uh, old age for elderly people and social insurance for workers. So these were two uh, welfare measures which Lloyd George introduced in his budget of uh, 1909. Wants uh, to be paid for with very high taxes on uh, the on, on wealthy landowners, and also a, a tax that would impact uh, many people in Ireland negatively, uh, a tax on spirits. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so Redmond, the uh, yeah, these uh, conservative forces, if you like, are property owners who stood to lose from heavy taxation. Um, they opposed the um, this welfare um, the uh, welfare program suggested by Lloyd George, uh, but the people who actually turned it into a political crisis were the House of Lords, the upper house in uh, Westminster. They vetoed the the bill, uh, the budget. They vetoed Lloyd George's bullet, uh, um, budget in 1909. Uh, this uh, put the government, the Liberal government, on a collision course with the upper house. And many of the prominent Liberals of the time, including Winston Churchill and uh, uh, Herbert Asquith, um, they saw the way things were heading. They, the government was going to have to face down the House of Lords. So Redmond, uh, as a consummate parliamentary man, uh, he saw the opportunity for the Irish party here. He pledged support for the government um, in, in uh, uh, facing down the House of Lords veto. If the House of Lords, sorry, I, I'll rephrase that. Uh, he uh, pledged the support of the Irish party to the government's campaign to face down the House of Lords veto in return for the Liberal Party agreeing to place home rule at the top of their practical agenda. So this became, this then set the uh, political 
agenda for the year 1910, 1911. Uh, now, even though in doing so, Redmond uh, could not avoid antagonizing uh, powerful conservative forces at home in Ireland, um, uh, people who criticized uh, the higher taxation um, being uh, enacted by the liberals. But he saw an opportunity and he seized it. And this brought Ireland or the Irish Parliamentary Party to the uh, to achieving something that uh, O'Connell had never been able to achieve, that that Parnell had never been able to achieve. And after the events of 1910, two general elections, the liberals are only able to maintain office because they have the votes of the Irish parliamentarians. Exactly. So, yeah. Ready? And yeah, sorry. Uh, and I was, was going to say, and yet, in spite of all the success that he's having in Westminster, there are some uh, portents or some some sort of seeds of, of of what's to come that are being sown in Ireland itself. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit to what he's doing in in how, in spite of his successes in Westminster, what's happening to the the Irish Nationalist Party in Ireland itself, the, the, the gap that's emerging in particular between the generations. Sure. Well, in the first decade of his leadership, um, even though these uh, very significant reforms were won, which really uh, transformed the face of Ireland, the, the, uh, the, la- the, the revolution in land ownership, the university, uh, various other reforms, the uh, housing for uh, rural laborers and so on, uh, while these reforms were transforming the face of Ireland, uh, there was a blind spot uh, which the which Redmond and the Irish Party didn't address, and this was the generation gap which was developing. Because after, well, this really goes back to um, the death of Parnell. Um, the poet Yeats um, uh, was uh, put this into verse. The 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 fact that the death of Parnell, the loss of there was a certain loss of idealism among young nationalists and in fact they had become um, embittered or they had become um, um, disillusioned with politics per se in the 1890s and this disillusionment persisted into the first decade of the uh, Redmond's leadership of the reunited Irish party so that many talented young people didn't really uh, regard the Irish party as terribly relevant and they they were putting their energies into other uh, projects such as the revival of the Gaelic language um, into uh, uh, drama, uh, the arts and so on. Now, these people formed, these people would form the intelligentsia of the future self-governing Ireland, but they were disenchanted with politics. And uh, many of them, uh, if Redmond had, and his colleagues, if they had taken a slightly, well, if they had taken a more um, uh, proactive approach in the in the first decade of the 20th century, it's quite possible, we'll never know for sure, but it's quite possible that they could have enlisted many more of these talented younger people into the party and recruited them for the home rule cause. Now, they did it to a certain extent. There are some names like uh, Tom Kettle, and um, uh, people like that, uh, uh, Francis Cruz O'Brien, who stand out, but they didn't do enough of that. And they they 
it wasn't so much that they alienated young people, but they certainly didn't uh, do enough to uh, to address the disenchantment of young people with nationalist politics. So a lot of these uh, younger folk then uh, kind of came to maturity, viewing the Irish party as a bunch of um, as a bunch of uh, kind of aging, comfortable bourgeois people who are happy to sit in Parliament and at Westminster and just talk. And they, um, it led to them, um, it led to their, to the young generations uh, underestimating the achievements of the Irish party. So it's one of the mistakes that, uh, that can be put to the account of Redmond and his colleagues. And it's a mistake that need not necessarily have been fatal because in 1910, 1911, uh, to bring us back to uh, where we were there, it seems that he's about to achieve this goal. Uh, and so after 19, after 1911, you, you have a liberal government that is in office that is delivering on this promise. And this is where you really go into considerable depth uh, regarding the negotiations. I was wondering if you could explain a bit what was happening there and why these negotiations were uh, seen as necessary. You're talking about the negotiations of, of the Home Rule Bill itself? Yes, and and and, and the, the the great uh, dissent that uh, uh, you were seeing within uh, Ulster about the issue and and the growing radicalization of of, yeah. of home rule as a political issue. Well, of course, this we're talking now about the 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 Achilles' heel of the entire Irish nationalist project, including the Irish uh, home rule movement. The Achilles' heel being the fact that in the northeast corner of the island. There were one million people with a, a, a different shared history, a different ethnicity, a different religion, a different culture. Um, the Ulster Protestants, what you in, in the United States uh, would call the Scots-Irish, um, very much uh, there had been a brief meeting point at the end of the 18th century with the leaders of the Irish Catholic um, community. But all through the 19th century, the two communities had diverged. The uh, Ulster Protestants had become prosperous. They had been part of the greater British Industrial Revolution. They had been uh, in free trade with the mainland of Britain. And so their politics were unionist. They had no sympathy with separatist projects or any self-government uh, projects for Ireland. And this was uh, some, uh, this put them uh, at uh, direct loggerheads with the Catholic uh, nationalist community. The Catholic nationalists felt aggrieved because Britain had been slow to enact Catholic emancipation after the Union of 1800. Um, that gave grounds then for nationalist agitation. And that was a mistake that the British government needn't have made, have made but they unfortunately they did. Um, so by the late 19th century, uh, the two communities were facing in different directions, uh, diametrically opposed. So um, when the first Home Rule Bill had been um, uh, put, uh, introduced in Parliament by Gladstone, there had been, well, at the time it collapsed, there had been rioting in Belfast, which was the capital of the northeast of Ireland. Um, the Unionists had uh, rioted about, uh, over the, the prospect that they might be subjected to majority rule coming from Dublin, uh, from a Catholic-dominated Dublin parliament. That was anathema to Ulster Protestants. Okay, so... Not just anathema. 
uh, not just anathema, but unprecedented, because in the 18th century, when Ireland did have a parliament, it was a parliament that was by virtue of, uh, you know, denying Catholics the the vote. It was dominated by Protestants. So they were talking about the restoration of a Catholic rule that really had not been seen since the 16th century. And in their minds, that was something that was just totally unacceptable. Exactly. Totally unacceptable. So when the when. by 1911, the House of Lords veto had been finally put to rest, um, uh, had been uh, removed. And uh, so home rule was ne- a third home rule bill was now a serious political possibility or probability. In fact, and the liberals were about to bring one in. They did introduce it. A Prime Minister Asquith introduced it in April 1912. But for the entire year of 1911, Ulster Unionists was signalling to the British that uh, it was simply not acceptable that they would be put under the rule of a Dublin Home Rule Parliament. We, we should explain here that the the uh, House Lords veto hadn't been eliminated, but it had been changed to where instead of it being an absolute veto, it was a three year suspensory veto. So Home Rule was not imminent in 1912. It was or 1911. It was three years off. They had to go through this procedure of passing the, the bill and then passing it in two more sessions before it would become law. So now we're talking about a, a three-year period in which uh, Irish home rule is looming. Uh, that's absolutely accurate, Mark. Yeah, they were looking at a, they were looking at an, uh, as they saw it, at a, a historical inevitability. They could see uh, home rule being enacted, uh, being uh, put into effect three years down the road. And so they began, uh, not only uh, do they, uh, lobby politically at Westminster and uh, agitate on, plat- on uh, political platforms across Britain and Ireland, but they also began uh, preparations to uh, for military resistance if, in their eyes, the worst came to the worst. Uh, they began to recruit retired uh, officers of the British Army to train local volunteers in resisting the imposition of Home Rule. Now, in 1912, the third Home Rule Bill was introduced in Parliament, and um, uh, this was regarded by Nationalist Ireland as a moment of victory, naturally. They could see they, things were set on course. Uh, as you said, a three-year procedure of the, the bill had to pass through Parliament three times in three consecutive sessions, and by then it would be law. Of course, in 1912, nobody foresaw the Great War. Um, although there were war clouds rumbling in uh, Europe. Um, Redmond uh, and the rest of the uh, ho- of his home rule colleagues were sanguine. They were extremely sanguine that uh, Ireland at last had reached the promised land. These uh, biblical terms were used, the promised land and so on. Um, at the same time, Ulster was becoming louder and louder in its uh, threats to resist. Now, in 1912, the form that this resistance took was that both sides were playing the game for the full uh, island. Uh, uh, The the home rulers wanted home rule for uh, all of Ireland. That meant all 32 counties of Ireland. The Ulster opposition were uh, campaigning to have home rule simply scrapped. They wanted uh, uh, no home rule for any part of Ireland. So this was obvious. uh, This was a case of the irresistible force and the immovable object. When uh, the bill was reintroduced in 1913 under the rules, um, 
the same the um, uh, uh, the de- uh, I should say that in 1912 uh, the majority of the actual debating the majority of words spoken in Parliament took place in 1912. In 1913, the bill was simply run through as a formality through uh, uh, through the various stages. But by the by the aut- um, by the fall of 1913, uh, it had gone through the second of the three stages. So responsible politicians in Westminster on both sides were looking down at the following year, 1914. Um, they were now, you know, right up against. Uh, the end of the process, they were seeing right by early next year, the bill is going to be uh, is going to pass all stages. It's going to become law, but we can't. We are facing into the possibility of serious civil conflict, uh, in, uh, violence on the island of Ireland, and we have. Uh, you know, what can we do to avert this? And so, out of the mists of of that. Uh, um, uh, of the debates of late 1913, um, a lot of backroom discussions began to happen. Um, people on both sides um, uh, meeting senior figures in the British government, and out of this, the first uh, intimations of of a partition settlement began to emerge. And this, uh, in the spring of 1914, then Prime Minister Asquith put the first partition scheme. To Parliament, the first offer of uh, excluding some of the counties in the northeast of Ireland from the Home Rule Bill, so that it would then, so that when it passed into law, it would be passed for, uh, it would become law for the parts of Ireland which were majority uh, Catholic, majority nationalist, but it would the the other parts they the uh, parts of Ulster, which were majority Protestant Unionists, would be excluded from uh, the bills uh, from the bill's provisions. So this is, now, yeah. Uh, uh, where is Redmond in this process, and what is his position on partition, and is that affecting his stance, his, his uh, standing back in Ireland? Okay. Well, in 1914. Uh, in March 1914, when Prime Minister Asquith put the partition scheme, uh, he put it in the form of uh, there were two main elements to it. First of all, it was to be temporary, only for six years. And secondly, uh, it was to involve uh, individual counties holding plebiscites and each county being able to decide to stay in or or or, or exclude itself from home rule. So uh, Redmond very reluctantly agreed to support this, uh, mainly on the grounds of it being temporary. Uh, There were other provisions of the bill which weren't going to kick in for a number of years in any case. So he could just about live with the idea of of a temporary exclusion of Ulster counties. Um, But he had given hostages to fortune in his own speech making the previous years. He had called, uh, as recently as October 1913, he had called uh, any proposal to partition Ireland as the mutilation of the Irish nation. And this was something that resonated that uh, with his followers. Most Irish nationalists would have agreed with him on that, that they, they couldn't conceive. Um, to them, the Irish nation meant the island of Ireland, all of it. Um, and no, uh, the uh, Redmond and his parties, um, uh, 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 Redmond and, his, and all his fellow home rulers can be held uh, culpable 
of failing to educate their followers to the reality that in the northeast of the island there were one million people, uh, uh, up to tw- um, twenty, uh, roughly twenty-two percent of the island's population, who would simply not accept home rule and were of a completely different tradition. Uh, but uh, in 1914, Redmond agreed to the temporary partition scheme. Of course, uh, Edward Carson, the leader of the Ulster Unionists, ironically born in Dublin and uh, ironically an anti-partitionist, but forced into um, a, uh, into a partitionist stance, he uh, rejected the offer of temporary partition. He said, uh, giving, us, um, uh, uh, giving us exclusion for six years is like a sentence of death with a stay of execution for six years. It's not acceptable. So from that point on, from March 1914, uh, right up to the summer, there was deadlock in Parliament. And the deadlock in Parliament was reflected on the streets because uh, the Ulster uh, volunteers had now come into being. Uh, This was a force of over 100,000 young, mainly uh, um, young uh, Protestant Unionist men uh, who had uh, run weapons into the province and were in a quite a powerful position. They were well trained, and uh, uh, over that uh, period of months, they had uh, gathered uh, fairly modern weaponry, so they were ready to fight. Um, the, the people whom they would have been fighting were of two kinds. They, uh, it, if the British government had attempted to enforce home rule for the whole island, they would have then the Ulster volunteers would have found themselves facing British troops in military combat. But also by then there was a nationalist volunteer force had come into being in late 1913. These were the Irish National Volunteers. They were bigger in number than the Ulster, uh, but uh, not as well trained and their weaponry wasn't as good. But there would cert in the uh, parts in the northern parts of Ireland where the two communities were in close proximity, these two sets of volunteers would certainly uh, have been in conflict. And they, it, it looked, by the summer of 1914, it certainly looked as if those two sets of volunteers were heading for a local civil war. And it was one in which the British would have had problems with addressing, not only in terms of the uh, the uh, conflict between the two sides, but the there was also some questions about the ability to commit the British army. And here I'm thinking of the uh, Curra mutiny. Sure. Yeah, it, uh, in March 1914, uh, a group of British officers who were stationed at the Curra. The Curra is in the Midlands of Ireland, and it, it was one of the one of the series of British army uh, bases or forts in uh, in uh, uh, located in nationalist Ireland. But the officer class of the army was very often sympathetic to the unionist cause. Uh, they tended to be the rank and file of the army tended to be Catholic. But the officer class tended to be Protestant and Unionist in its politics. At the Curra in March 1914, a group of officers, they didn't exactly mutiny because in order to mutiny, you need to disobey an, an order already given. But they signaled to their superiors that, uh, that they would prefer to resign their commissions rather than be given an order to march on Ulster to enforce home rule. Uh, it didn't apply to every officer. The British uh, government could still have found other officers without Irish connections who would have been willing to march on Ulster. But um, 
um, to enforce home rule. But it was simply um, the British government by then realized that it wasn't politically uh, possible to do this. Um, the British electorate, um, including many liberal supporters, would have revolted against any move to to uh, coerce uh, people who, after all, um, uh, people in Ulster who, after all, were guilty only of declaring loyalty to Britain, that the this um, to suppress them and force them to accept the authority of uh, uh, what seemed to them an alien parliament in Dublin, that would have looked to the British electorate like expelling part of the citizenry of the United Kingdom, a loyal citizenry, expelling them from the United Kingdom, from British citizenship and all the rights that went with that, and putting them under the rule of an alien um, uh, nationalist government in Dublin. So uh, the government realised it just simply couldn't do this. So, and as it's yeah. working towards a solution, you have the outbreak of war in Europe, and within a matter of days, Britain is committed to that war. I was wondering if you could speak here a bit about how Redmond responds, how the Irish nationalist movement responds to the outbreak of war, and and how that you know, and what his intentions are with that response at the beginning of at the beginning of the conflict. Well, at the beginning of the conflict. The conflict, uh, the outbreak of the Great War actually saved Ireland from a local small war between Ulster, Ulster volunteers uh, and uh, nationalist volunteers. Um, Redmond um, had been preparing to go a little further than, well, um, significantly further than his original um, uh, agreement, uh, his original concession. He was preparing to uh, let these um, to abandon the six year time limit. And to agree that uh, the uh, those counties in Ulster which opted out of Home Rule could stay out as long as they liked. So this was going to be a form of indefinite partition. And uh, he never got to make that speech because the uh, Parliament uh, had to turn its attention to much more pressing matters in Europe. And so the deadlock um, over partition remained. Then you had uh, Britain went into the war with the Ulster question unresolved. And Redmond um, uh, had to make some very, very quick decisions because Carson, the leader of the Ulster Unionists, had pledged immediately that his followers, the Ulster volunteers, would be ready to serve the British cause um, anywhere um, uh, in Europe. And Redmond uh, had to match that with a similar uh, declaration of loyalty from uh, from nationalist Ireland, uh, in order to remain, uh, you know, uh, to remain in the good books of British public opinion. Um, so what he uh, he was uh, caught in a very difficult situation. In August, at uh, the day before the outbreak of war, he stood up in the uh, British Parliament and made an impromptu speech in which he pledged the loyalty and the sympathy of nationalist Ireland to the British war uh, war effort. Um, he didn't. At that point, pledge the recruiting uh, uh, efforts that he would later make uh, for the British Army. In other words, he didn't commit the manpower of Nationalist Ireland to the British Army just yet. The reason was that uh, although home, uh, uh, although the Home Rule Act had been passed, had passed all stages in the House of Commons, it had not yet been signed into law by the King. It wasn't on the statute book. So for the first six weeks of the war, 
he had to lobby the British government. And it was a very difficult process because the, um, it, the unionists had already said, we, we're agreeable to not discussing home rule. We want to concentrate on the war. But Redmond couldn't leave matters like that. He had to win the actual Home Rule Act onto the statute book before he could then tell Nationalist Ireland that it was um, uh, OK to enlist in the British Army. Um, so by uh, it was late September, well, it was uh, mid-September when he finally uh, uh, got the British government to agree that the king would sign the act onto the statute book. This took place on the 18th of September. So the war was then seven months old. Um, one of the things that favoured Redmond in his um, earlier commitment to the British war effort was that Belgium the, uh, was the first victim of the German advance into France. Uh, uh, Germany had uh, uh, violated Belgian neutrality. That is an understatement because they had uh, driven their armies right through Belgium uh, and they had uh, massacred uh, hundreds of Belgian civilians along the way. Anybody um, even remotely suspected of uh, carrying a weapon uh, or um, uh, interfering with the uh, passage of German uh, troops through the country was likely to be just put up against a wall and shot. Um, not only that, but the Germans burnt down um, some very important... They um, destroyed some towns in Belgium which had... Uh, centuries-old associations with Irish Catholicism, the, the town of Louvain in particular, where there was uh, an Irish uh, university, or a university in which Irish Catholic refugees from the wars of the 17th century had studied. Uh, they burnt the town of Louvain along with a library uh, uh, containing thousands of precious manuscripts. It was something a little bit akin to what ISIS had been doing in Palmyra, um, the, the headline on some of the Irish nationalist newspapers, uh, uh, one, I, uh, uh, one I can think of in particular, an Irish national newspaper, the headline was War of the Barbarians. So uh, Irish nationalist public opinion in the early months of the war was very pro-British, um, if only because it was very anti-German. And it was anti-German because it saw Belgium as a small fellow Catholic country raped by uh, a large imperial aggressor. Um, so Redmond did win. Uh, uh, he had the wind behind him, if you like, in the early months on those grounds, on the grounds of public sympathy among his followers for Belgium. Um, but there's a cal there, there's an element in, in, in his judgment. There's an assumption. And that assumption is and it's one that's shared by a lot of people at the very beginning, which is that this will be a short war. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the initial assumption was the war would be over by Christmas. Uh, when that came and went, it was then assumed that it would be over within a year. Um, I don't really think, though, I mean, it, it's uh, it's often alleged or it's often asserted that uh, the uh, prolongation of the war in itself was the main factor that brought Redmond down in the end. I don't think it was. Uh, it, it certainly made things more difficult. But the real, the real um, factor that... Um, that would destroy Redmond and ultimately Home Rule and the Home Rule Party was kind of hidden um, in uh, when the war began. And it was the unresolved Ulster conflict. They, uh, when the war began, Ulster simply went off the news pages. It, it, 
it wasn't forgotten about, but it simply ceased to be a big political issue. And um, it was it, it would have been at the back of the minds or the consciousness of Irish nationalists, but there was never uh, a public outcry against uh, temporary partition, the, the temporary scheme that Redmond had agreed to. It, it never uh, built up enough momentum to cause a public outcry in 1914. So Events moved forward in uh, through 1915 and into early 1916. Um, there was certainly a lot of unease in nationalist Ireland about the future of home rule, especially when Prime Minister Asquith uh, uh, came under a lot of criticism for his man- management of the war. And in May 1915, he brought Tories into the government uh, to form a nationalist government. So Irish nationalists were then looking at some old enemies of home rule being now in the British government, and this made them very uneasy. Something I've got even a step further, because you describe in your book that there was an offer tendered to Redmond to join the government as a minister. Yeah, Redmond was a, was offered a place in the British government. He would have become some kind of a, a minister without portfolio or something like that. Um, he turned it down, uh, a mistake in my view, uh, although I can understand uh, why he did it. And in fact, he probably was going to be damned if he did and damned if he didn't. He was, uh, because it had been a long-standing ethic in Irish nationalist politics that you didn't take paid employment from the British uh, government. And um, uh, it, it was one of, the, one of the chief weapons by which constitutional nationalists were able to maintain their credentials against the physical force or violent tradition the Fenian tradition in nationalism, that they could uh, maintain that they were uh, incorruptible. If Redmond had taken uh, a cabinet post, he, on the one hand, he would have had more influence with the uh, British government. Um, He might have been able to avert some of the mistakes. Uh, On the other hand, he would, it would have immediately led to, um, it would have given his enemies at home a field day uh, to accuse him of, you know, being corrupt and um, accepting the Saxon shilling, as they would have put it, and so on. So he really didn't have too many good options. He didn't have any good options in that. But by night, but, uh, nevertheless, we 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 shouldn't overplay the degree of negativity or unease among Redmond's nationalist followers. We at, at the end of the day, there were six by-elections in the period in the first eighteen months of the war, which would bring us up to. March 1916. During those 18 months, the Redmond's party, or if not Redmond's party, at least uh, candidates pledged to home rule, won all six by-elections. Now, that wasn't a, that wasn't a bad performance considering the, the amount of uh, discontent and unease. So the home rule party was still, uh, home rule was still the only game in town right up to the rebellion of Easter 1916. Uh, Easter then, Easter 1916 came in late April, and that's when the rebellion, the one week rebellion, which transformed everything, uh, um, happened in Dublin. And it wasn't so much that uh, the rebellion was seen as a stab in the back for Redmond, uh, which it was. It, It was as much a rebellion against the Home Rule Party as it was a rebellion against the British government. Um, and most was, most of that was, was, was horrified. I was going to say, was Redmond uh, uh, caught unaware by the rebellion? Because one of the things that I, I noticed is, 
uh, I was reading those chapters was he's very focused upon what's happening in London and he has Dylan in Dublin. He has, he has other you know people giving him information, but he, he seems to be not necessarily uh, as attuned to what's happening uh, within the, the currents of Irish politics in Ireland itself. Yeah, there is the, the uh, he, well, although he was, um, uh, there was a division of labor between Redmond and Dillon. Uh, as you say, Dillon would, uh, lived in Dublin. Redmond spent much more time at Westminster. And when he wasn't there, he was in his home in the, in the remote Wicklow Mountains south of Dublin. Uh, but however, he wasn't out of touch with Irish opinion. He, his correspondence with, with, his follower, uh, with his MPs was, quite, was still as full as ever. And he, he was still attuned to what was happening. But the, I think this is a collective thing affecting the Irish leadership as a whole. And not only the Irish leadership, but the, the chief secretary, Augustine Birrell, who was the, the, uh, the man who had been given the job of paving the way for home rule as far back as 1907. They were all, they, in retrospect, they all seemed to be like rabbits caught in headlights. They, they, <laughs> they had warnings. They had uh, warnings uh, from uh, people that, that the, that the uh, rebellious faction within the volunteers. It must be said that uh, when the that the Irish volunteers had split in 1914 uh, over Redmond's encouragement of enlisting in the British Army, but the <clears throat> the faction who opposed Redmond amounted to seven percent of the membership of the uh, volunteers. So, uh, but in the intervening 18 months up to 1916, those seven percent had increased their activity and they were being manipulated behind the scenes by um, this tiny elite of the seven member military council of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which uh, actually uh, uh, had decided on a on an armed rebellion against the the, uh, British rule as soon as they could. So they were planning for that. The membership of the Irish volunteers uh, although they were dissident and opposed uh, uh, being enlisted in, into the British Army, most of the membership, the rank and file membership, didn't know that a rebellion was actually being planned. So they were being manu- they were being manipulated and maneuvered into a rebellion. The rebellion finally broke out in uh, 19, in Easter week, 1916. But uh, Redmond had uh, they they. Uh, Redmond and his colleagues all collectively assumed that the rebellion would be something on the, you know, would be a minor affair, that it might, that there might be a skirmish or a riot or two, and it, uh, there might be a little bit of violence. They they didn't envisage anything on the scale of what actually uh, happened. And it's one of these, um, I I don't know, I, I uh, when I think of this, I think of 9-11, I think of how you know, you can, in retrospect, you can point uh, backwards and say, you know, there were many warnings. Why wasn't the FBI more galvanized for a threat and so on? It's just one of these things that uh, people, you know, uh, people fight uh, issues along uh, in the in the light of previous experience. They don't anticipate a new and very different, uh, you know, um, a turn of events. So well, plus you plus you mentioned that they had been receiving warnings as early as September of 1914. Yeah. So in the 
roughly 18, 19 months uh, leading up to the rebellion, this had, there'd always been this undercurrent, this concern, but there's a difference between, you know, rumors and the reality of rebellion that shocks many people. Yeah, that's right. They, they could um, dismiss them as rumors. Redmond being a consummate Democrat and a parliamentarian, he could, he, he tended to see things in terms of majorities and minorities. And he thought, OK, uh, uh, there is a minority uh, planning something, planning trouble. But they will because nationalist, the majority of Irish nationalists are out of sympathy with that approach and uh, they that they will overbear the minority. He didn't think in terms of uh, a highly motivated minority who are capable of setting a whole new agenda yeah as as 911 proves to us and many other similar events the minority doesn't need you know a minority and in fact by the very fact of its being a minority can actually do more to set a new agenda than uh, without looking for majority support they can uh, turn the majority uh, they can uh, force the majority to accept a whole new reality and uh, that's what happened i mean in in easter week 1916 the seat of British rule in Dublin, Dublin Castle, was guarded by six uh, British soldiers. That's the number of armed soldiers that were guarding the seat of British administration in Dublin. Six soldiers. The rest of them on that day uh, were at the races at a, a place 14 miles outside Dublin, an annual um, racing event, horse racing. So that's how, that's how complacent the British authorities were. Um, in spite of the warnings that, that they'd been given. How did the rebellion uh, change Redmond's position in Irish politics? And, and, and how did he respond to this new world that had been created by the Rising? Well, the, the, the big event that followed the, the rebellion itself was, of course, the executions, um, the executions of, 14 of the leaders uh, within the two weeks after the surrender of the rebels. And then uh, later on, at the end of the summer, there was a 15th execution of Sir Roger Casement. And those 15 executions transformed emotional sentiment within the Irish nationalist community, even though they, they uh, the vast majority of nationalists were horrified by the rebellion. Uh, they gave it, they would have given it, they uh, even in retrospect they gave it no support. But within uh, those uh, within a month, sympathy had begun to shift to the rebels, even if not retrospective support for the project itself. There was a sympathy that Irish men had been gunned down by British troops in Dublin, and uh, this was a, a very emotive affair. And, and, and Redmond had actually uh, wrote to, uh, to to counsel against those executions. Yeah. Um, in the very early stage, he had more or less agreed uh, in private that the, the, the ringleaders uh, must be dealt with with the utmost severity. But in his mind, he, ha he, he thought of one or two or three, three at the most. But when the, when the executions began to go on over, the, over a week and then into a second week, he began to lobby the British government to have them stopped because he could see and he was getting he, he was getting reports from Irish America that they were having a very negative effect in um, um, in the States, in the United States. 
So he pleaded with Asquith to have them stopped. Unfortunately, Asquith had appointed a British army general and given him more or less carte blanche to deal with the rebellion. And uh, General Maxwell was by this time in Dublin and more or less running matters himself. Now, Asquith did have the execution stopped after the second week, but by then much of the damage had been done. And uh, military, uh, well, martial law was actually declared by General Maxwell, although it was never put into effect. This is a sometimes a, um, a misconceived impression. Uh, martial law was never actually uh, um, put into action, but um, they, the British reckoned that they had enough previous legislation to deal with the aftermath of the rebellion. But nevertheless, there were many arrests um, around the country in places which had been uh, which had stayed peaceful. The rebellion, it must be remembered, was only in uh, only took place in Dublin, and it it had there were uh, the beginnings of rebellion in a couple of other towns. But by and large, nationalist Ireland had remained quiet. But now the the police and the army were raiding for arms and weaponry in other peaceful parts of Ireland, and this antagonised the population and uh, the the arrests of people who had um, against whom there was no evidence um, that also antagonized the population. Uh, so Redmond, for the rest of that summer, Redmond was fighting a rearguard action. There's a very large, thick file of correspondence between Redmond and General Maxwell in which Redmond is lobbying on behalf of people who have approached him to plead their innocence and to uh, families of people who've been arrested to have them released. And Redmond was successful to quite a quite a large extent but nevertheless um it took many months before the innocent were were uh, released and in the meantime opinion had been uh, alienated and antagonized so um coming the the immediate political event that um that uh presented a very serious crisis for redmond and which ultimately uh began his destruction was an event that happened beginning two months after the rebellion. And this is in, we're talking about June and July of 1916. The British government uh, was looking around for what to do, for something to, something to do about the Irish situation. It seemed clear to everybody that Dublin Castle rule, the, the administration as it had been, was now a uh, busted flush uh, that there was no future and um, an attempt began to uh, conciliate nationalist Ireland and the means to do this was to put the Home Rule Bill, the Home Rule Act I should say, which had been on the statute book since September 1914, to actually put this into immediate operation. It, It had been suspended until the end of the war but now the British, and it, it, this wasn't just liberals, but even Tories who had been quite prominent in campaigning against home rule now thought that in order to placate uh, American opinion, that, that the Home Rule Act should now be put into operation. It must be remembered that at this time, uh, with the war uh, going very badly for the Allies, um, the British government, Lloyd George was now... Uh, Sorry, Lloyd George didn't become prime minister until the end of 1916. But the British government was uh, looking to America to enter the war. 
and uh, Irish American and German American opinion was very much opposed to any thought of our of America entering the war. And Woodrow Wilson had been re-elected on a platform of keeping America out of the war. So there was an uphill battle to be climbed in terms of uh, for the British in terms of winning a U.S. entry into the war. Um, therefore, uh, uh, British politicians of all parties decided that. Uh, placate, uh, to placate American opinion, Ireland should be given home rule immediately. So Lloyd George began a process. Uh, Lloyd George was now Minister of Munitions, a very, very powerful minister in the British government. He agreed to carry on shuttle negotiations between Redmond and Carson. And he got a, He stitched a deal together which they could both agree to uh, uh, on a provisional basis. And the deal was that the home rule bill w- sorry, the Home Rule Act of Parliament should now come into immediate operation, but the six northern, northeastern counties should be excluded. And this would, this uh, arrangement would continue for the rest of the war and for one year thereafter. And after that, it would um, continue until the British Parliament came to make another arrangement. Now, both sides could accept this. Redmond accepted it because he thought uh, it was presented to him as a strictly provisional. Uh, Provisional meant a little more than temporary, but nevertheless, it wasn't final. Um, For for Carson, the fact that uh, only Parliament could change it at the very end of the process meant that he was he felt pretty secure that a partition wouldn't be undone at the end of the provisional period. So both sides were able to just about sell this to their followers within Ireland. Um, what happened, it, it looked as if the deal was was going to be OK and that the British government would then enact legislation at the end of July. But the uh, opposition to the deal came from an unforeseen quarter. It came from southern, prominent southern unionists. Uh, and when I say southern, I mean southern Ireland unionists. These were large landowners who, who still had quite extensive uh, holdings in the south of Ireland, but where uh, had been uh, anti-partition, they, they had uh, wanted all of Ireland, the, the entire island of Ireland, to remain within the United Kingdom, but they had in the early part of the war, they had just about been reconciling themselves to home rule in a, um, as long as the uh, home rule government uh, maintained a, a certain loyalty of sympathy to the to the, um, to Britain. But now in the aftermath of the rebellion, they saw home rule as a reward for terrorism or a reward for violence. And their chief, their their leader, Lord Lansdowne, in the British Parliament, he set out to to um, to, to wreck the deal. So the deal had been more or less agreed between the two communi- the leaders of the two communities in Ireland. But this unforeseen um, actor, Lord Lansdowne, head of the Southern Unionists, uh, wrecked the deal. And the way he did it was he persuaded the British government to. Um, that in the parliamentary language of the legislation, that the word permanent should be put in uh, to, do, uh, to describe partition, that um, 
that a partition should be formally made permanent. Now, Redmond had based his entire support for the deal on uh, the provisionality or the uh, he had sold it on the basis of partition being maybe an indefinite future uh, possibility, but by no means solidly entrenched in the here and now. It was all a very delicate uh, matter of language and semantics. And uh, the British government don't seem to have uh, seen what really the problem was. Uh, Britain, uh, uh, misunderstandings of language between uh, British and Irish leaders had been uh, had been um, leading source of the conflict for many, many generations. And this was no exception. Uh, the British didn't really see what the problem was. Redmond had, after all, said that he was against the coercion of, of any Ulster County uh, to join Home Rule. So then, so what was the problem then in calling um, uh, exclusion or partition permanent? Well, it meant an awful lot symbolically to Redmond and to nationalists because he had to hold out at least to the theoretical possibility of reunion of the of the whole island at some point in the future. And it, the, uh, making partition permanent looked like uh, applying a, a surgical scalpel to the map of Ireland and uh, dividing it forever. So this was something he had to reject. Therefore, he had to pull out of the deal. Uh, when he pulled out of the deal, he had to come back to his followers um, tainted with the fact that he had agreed to partition and yet he had nothing to show for it. In the meantime, new political forces were on the rise who were capitalizing on the big wave of Anglophobia, which was sweeping across the country after the executions. And he he lived another 18 months. And, and, and it, the last couple of chapters, uh, it, it just he seems to have one misfortune piling upon another. The, the death of his brother, uh, the growing uh uh, strength of Sinn Féin, uh, the, the the loss of all the the, the growing number of losses and by elections, it, it really seems to have just worn him down. Yeah, it did. It wore him down. But at the, uh, he was worn down politically, uh, as you say, by personal bereavement. His 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 eldest daughter had uh, uh, had emigrated to New York and was was living there uh, was uh, married uh, to an Irish doctor living in New York, and she died at the age of thirty three. Uh, that was a huge uh, personal blow. His brother, Willie, uh, one of the oldest uh, men serving with the British forces on the Western Front, at the age of 56, Willie had um, uh, donned a British Army uniform in order to encourage his followers to enlist. And he was living in a trench in uh, the Western Front. He was killed in June 1917. These were huge personal blows to Redmond. But Aside from that, the, uh, if we go back to the failure of the summer 1916 Home Rule deal, which Revan had had to pull out of, uh, from that point, there dates a political paralysis of Redmond's party because he can't go back and he can't go forward. He, uh, from that point on, he, he, he uh, forswears all further negotiation with the British government about um, any form of partition, he cannot. Uh, it's politically impossible to accept a, any form of partition. The, the point is that uh, I said earlier that in 1914, uh, partition, 
the partition issue had never reached the level of, of, of causing a public outcry. But in late 1916, it did just that. It became a, a, a toxic political issue. Uh, the entire nationalist population became sensitized to partition as never before. And it became politically impossible for any nationalist politician to even to even uh, entertain the concept of it, never mind agree to it. So Redmond was Redmond could not uh, enter any new negotiations uh, on the same basis as he had. They, the moment had passed in July 1916 at which he might have pulled off a home rule deal and just about won the support of nationalist Ireland on the basis of partition. It simply wasn't uh, practical politics after that. So he goes into 1917 then with this paralysis. He he can't go back to any negotiations. But meanwhile, the Sinn Féin party is now reorganizing itself, uh, capitalizing on the emotions of uh, especially the young people, young people who had never yet voted, but were going to be given the franchise for the in the election of 1918. Um, these people are swinging over in their art. Um, these are becoming the uh, the new electorate and overwhelmingly home rule in sympathy. Meanwhile, the older electorate who had supported the Irish party can see very little future for uh, home rule politics because uh, uh, basically uh, Lloyd George, who's now prime minister in 1917, is offering Redmond home rule. But uh, what he's offering is home rule with partition. He's saying the nationalist parts of Ireland can have all the self-government that you have in the Home Rule Act. We'll even improve on the financial terms of 1914 because uh, war taxes had had radically changed the finances of the Act. So Lloyd George is offering to make the financial terms of the Act much more favourable. But Nationalist Ireland is simply saying we're not, we cannot accept this. So Nationalist Ireland is then redefining uh, Home Rule. It's saying uh, it's accusing the British of withholding home rule, even though the British are saying, we will give you home rule. Um, uh, the reason is that Nationalist Ireland is saying that home rule without the six counties of Northern Ireland is simply not home rule. We we reject it. And so this was the uh, the paralyzed condition in which Redmond found himself politically uh, throughout 1917. Um, there was a last ditch effort in the form of the Irish Convention, which he attended. Uh, this was the last attempt to get uh, to win um, support uh, among all uh, communities within Ireland, within all uh, political forces on the island, to win a an all-Ireland uh, self-government. Um, but it never really, it, it, it was always uh, running the risk of being sidelined by Sinn Féin. Uh, Sinn Féin was capitalizing on the legacy of the rebels of Easter 1916, uh, even though Sinn Féin itself had not taken part in the rebellion. The, the people, the uh, Eamon de Valera, the, the last, uh, the only surviving rebel commandant, the one who hadn't been executed because of his American citizenship, he'd been born in New York. Uh, de Valera was now at the head of Sinn Féin by late 1917. And he was uh, winning landslide victories in by-elections and and uh, the Irish party was uh, increasingly demoralized and increasingly paralyzed politically and uh, so in March 1918 then Redmond uh, well Redmond had been suffering increasing ill health 
from 1916 onwards and in 1918, in March 1918, he died. And very soon after his death, just about all of his, uh, all of the projects which had engaged his energies, the, the 16th Irish Division, which was made up of the nationalists whom he had recruited for the British Army, that was uh, decimated by German advance, the German breakthrough on uh, at the Somme, March 1918. The Irish Convention uh, collapsed uh, or uh, failed to reach agreement shortly after he died. And later that year, in the December general election of uh, uh, the general election of December 1918, Sinn Féin won a landslide victory um, and uh, practically wiped out the Irish Parliamentary Party. So all three of Redmond's uh, political projects were uh, died more or less with him or shortly after him. I love the way you put it uh, in in the uh, penultimate chapter. Rarely is the life's work of a public person so comprehensively erased by history. Yeah, it's just incredible. I I, I haven't come across anybody else. I mean, you know, it's a commonplace to say that um, that all political careers end in failure. Uh, it, it's a truism, and it's it, it may not always be true, but it's it, it's true of many politicians. But in Redmond's case, it really reaches an extreme uh, uh, level that uh, you have not just the man himself failing in his immediate uh, projects, but just about everything that he had spent his 30, his what, his 37 year career uh, 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 campaigning for dies with him. Now, uh, as against that, of course, we could say that the the reforms, the the um, the social reforms, which his party had uh, brought in during the those 10 years, the first decade of the 20th century, when he was waiting for his political opportunity uh, to bring home rule into um, into life, to bring that issue to life. Those social reforms, the, the land purchase scheme, the uh, housing for rural laborers, the university, um, housing for the working classes in the cities, those reforms were... They, they constitute a, a lasting legacy. It's one that's completely forgotten in uh, contemporary Ireland. Uh, nobody remembers these at all. Uh, he, Redmond is remembered in uh, contemporary nationalist Ireland as um, a failed leader. And the, the controversy revolves around uh, whether he should or shouldn't have uh, bargained with the British. Um, he's seen by some as weak for agreeing to um, to encourage nationalists to enlist in, in the British Army uh, before Home Rule was actually put into practice. So that's that, you know, these controversies revolve around Redmond. Uh, there is no, there are uh, uh, public monuments in Dublin City to Charles Stuart Parnell and to Daniel O'Connell. Uh, and uh, there is absolutely no uh, public monument to Redmond. Uh, he was unlucky in the fact that uh, the other two guys had uh, succeeding uh, parliamentary leaders to uh, build monuments to them. Like uh, uh, It was Parnell who formally opened the, the monument to Daniel O'Connell, and it was Redmond who formally unveiled the monument to Parnell in 1911. But there was nobody left of the constitutional strand of nationalism to unveil a monument to Redmond after he died. And people... The, the people who took power in the new independent state were people who had been uh, hostile to Redmond all through his career. 
the inheritors of the Sinn Féin. Uh, you might say that beyond the grave, Redmond uh, probably did enjoy a final bitter, um, final last laugh, if you like, that he had been brought down in the in the final uh, by-elections where the Irish party lost to Sinn Féin. The, the principal issue was partition. Sinn Féin were castigating him for agreeing to partition. But in, uh, uh, as it would turn out later, after even after uh, 2,000 deaths in the War of Independence against the British, um, the final treaty um, left Northern Ireland um, as part of the United Kingdom. So partition uh, happened anyway. So th- although Sinn Féin had used it to bring the Irish party down, they, they themselves proved to be no more successful than Redmond had been in averting partition. And we still have 2000 lives later is the same outcome that Redmond was uh, on the cusp of achieving himself. Exactly. Yeah. So we could now we the one thing that Sinn Féin can legitimately claim that they won, that Redmond didn't win, was that they won a greater degree of autonomy. The, the essence the essential nature of the treaty that emerged uh, from after the War of Independence in 1921 was uh, what could be called um, Canadian-style home rule. Um, uh, it was called then Dominion Home Rule. Uh, it was what uh, so it gave a, a wider powers than the original Home Rule Act would have given. In other words, they the country was free to have an, a standing army and to have a, a, a diplomatic service. Uh, a foreign uh, office and so on, but uh, uh, nevertheless, the king or the monarch of uh, Great Britain would be the head of state of the new Irish Free State. So um, those are the the pluses and minuses of what Redmond achieved and didn't achieve. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, I'm working now on a on a I'm looking at the details of how public opinion in nationalist Ireland changed in the wake of the rebellion. So I'm looking at uh, essentially what I've just been talking about there, the the uh, the movements of opinion within nationalism from uh, summer of 1916, from the failure of the, the Home Rule deal, the rise of Sinn Féin, how the various organs of opinion like uh, newspapers, well, uh, the only media then, really, newspapers, um, um, and also some of the private correspondence between uh, the Home Rule leaders and the the uh, British government politicians. Um, I'm looking at how exactly the, uh, the the original Home Rule project died, and the the, the new politics took over. Sounds like a very interesting project. Well, it, it begins with 1916 ends in 1919. So, very that, that, that three-year time period in which so much changes. Exactly, so much changed, yeah. Well, Derma, uh, thank you for being on the show. Uh, it was great uh, hearing about the life of John Redmond, and, and, and uh, I hope you have a wonderful day. Uh, it was a great pleasure, Mark, to talk to you, and a great honor to be interviewed. So, uh, I wish you the best, and your listeners. Thank you. Thank you.